Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Thank you to you all for coming. So it's the you, you, a lot of them. You have been here before. So this is our results. So most of the results are uh, going to be uh, explained by Brad. Uh, so just to remind you what we think is special about judges, we're doing a buy and build model of scientific instruments company. We believe it's a very favorable market to do that because of the long-term drivers, because of a large pool of potential candidates for acquisitions and the low capital requirements. So these are the three things which really drive shareholder value. And we've done 19 acquisitions since May 2005 when we started in our present format. So it's a bit more than one a year. And we're disciplined in acquisitions, very important to buy sensible businesses and to, uh, with, with sustainable earnings and cash flow and to pay sensible prices for it. So it's a very simple formula. And that's the thing which has created shareholder values in the last 16 years. So, of course, acquisition is a very random path. And as the slide shows you, you know, we have some very good years where we do a lot of deals and we have other years which are, you know, we try to do a lot of deals, but we don't succeed. So we have to accept that as a fact. And in fact, after a very good period between December 19 and October 20, we had a very good period. And since then, we haven't done another deal, but we keep hope. And I'll talk a bit more about this, I'm sure, in the question. A little aperçu of all our customers. We have many, many customers all around the world. A lot of them are universities. You see some very prestigious ones on the left, but there's also some less prestigious ones. But basically, all the prestigious ones are our customers, or the customers of one of our businesses. We also sell to big industrial companies like Corning, L'Oreal, Fugro, and also the big scientific projects, which are either involved in research, like the CERN or the Allen Institute or the Diamond Light Source, but also a lot of compliance institutions and basically national test houses. Apart from those, which are the users of our products, we sell to OEMs and you see a little selection of the OEMs who, who buy our products and sell them on as such or include them in their own products. So, you know, we had a strange year, not quite as strange as 2020, but still not quite normal. And this was really a year of progressive recovery. So we produced record revenue, profits, and cash. So we're quite pleased with that. And we had also a record uh, order intake, uh, which not only was 25% up on uh, uh, organic on uh, 2020, but it wasn't so difficult because 2020 was really a bad year with the worst of COVID, but also we were pleased to be 8% up on 2019, which was our previous record year. And because of that, we feel that we are able to increase the dividend 20% for the full year, which means a 47% final. So, of course, there were still a lot of challenges, a lot of travel restrictions. It's really difficult to remember that just a year ago, we were still in lockdown and we could only eat outside in restaurants and we couldn't travel further than the frontiers of the country. So little by little, we were able to travel and visit our customers, uh, attend uh, scientific conferences, uh, and, 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 and that was a good thing. But as to be said, it was very slow. And actually, most of the conferences and conventions have really started only at the very end of last year and are starting now. So this year should be a big comeback for uh, trade conventions. Uh, supply chain issues were manageable. And although everybody was talking about them in 2020, where they were not a big problem, they became an increasing problem. And it's still the case Although we were hoping they would get better, we'll talk about this, but the war in Ukraine is making things again 
difficult. And of course, throughout, we took care of our staff and make sure they were safe. And although a lot of people have now had COVID, but uh, nobody was seriously ill and nobody ended up in hospital. So that was a good thing. So the outlook for the year, we still have uncertainty, still a bit of COVID going on the world, and particularly in China at this point, and of course the war. But still, we feel the environment is more normal than it was the last couple of years. And we're starting the year with a record order book of 23 weeks, and we think this will help us have a better year. So, performance review, so now it's up to you, Pat. Thanks, David, and good morning, everyone. Now I'm going to take you through the key highlights from the past year. And it's clear that we've had a really good recovery in 2021 after the COVID-affected prior year. And we've delivered, but on the face of it, very, very good record revenues, profits, earnings per share. And, and really, that's, you know, that's performance moving much closer to where we want it to be although not completely ahead of all of the 2019 pre-COVID comparatives. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. But going on to the highlights, total revenue up 14%. This is a combination of 10% organic revenue growth up from 5% of the half year and a contribution from our prior acquisitions. The good revenue growth has led to good profit growth and our adjusted operating profits are up 31% to 18.8 million from 14.4 million in 2020. And this has consequently gone down to earnings per share with adjusted earnings per share, a record 238.1 pence per share, up from 177.2 pence in 20. The good revenue growth has been strongly supported by organic order intake, up 25% on the prior year, and on a like-for-like basis, 8.5% ahead of 2019's prior record. And it's a sign that we are getting over the impact of the pandemic. Now, the strong organic order intake has led to a good, a very strong, in fairness, order book at the end of the year. Although, in fairness as well, it's been influenced by the challenges we've had with global supply chains. And I'll talk a little bit more about this and order intake a little bit later. The group's got a great track record of turning profit into cash. And we've generated nearly 20 million of cash from operations this year at a cash conversion of 104%. This has helped fund our progressively increasing dividend policy. And for the full year this year, our dividend for the full year is up 20% to 66 pence per share with a final dividend proposed of 47 pence. And we ended the year with 1.4 million of net cash up from, or better than at least, the 5.7 million net debt position at the start of the year, despite an outlay on a new building for one of our businesses for over a million and also 1.8 million outlay on increasing our interest in Bordeaux acquisition from 75.5% to 88%. And as a reminder, Bordeaux is the vehicle that, that owns two of our trading subsidiaries, Deben UK and Oxford Systems. Our balance sheet remains a strong feature of the business and we have high cash reserves, low gearing and significant headroom on all our covenants. And as I'll talk about a little bit later, we also refinance the group's borrowing facilities for a further five years, giving us significant runway on acquisitions. Inevitably, though, there are reasons to be cautious. The pandemic isn't yet over, and that's despite the UK having removed most of its restrictions. We continue to have to expend significant amounts of management and staff effort in navigating the challenges of the global supply chain issues, and we have to prepare ourselves for the consequences of the war in Ukraine. Nevertheless, we enter 2022 with positive order intake, a robust order book, and strong fundamentals. The key things I'll mention, having already talked about performance already, are three things really. One, big improvement in operating margins, reflecting the operational gearing of our business, although partly enhanced by first-time capitalization of R&D expenditure, and I will come back to talk about that in a bit more depth in a short while. Secondly, our effective tax rate on adjusted earnings is 15.2%, influenced heavily by the UK's R&D tax credit scheme, which benefits businesses like ours that invest heavily in R&D and have less than 500 employees. At the year end, we did exceed that particular criteria, 
So we will lose the greatest benefits from this scheme in future. And lastly, for those of you not as familiar with our PL, we do have adjusting items that take us to the statutory result. The largest component of these by far is the non-cash amortization of the intangible assets that we're required to recognize when we acquire businesses. I wanted to stop here and talk a little bit about capitalization of R&D. Now we have for the first time in our group's history, capitalized expenditure on new or significantly improved products, having historically experienced 100% of our R&D costs. What this means is it's resulted in an uplift to operating margins of close to 1%, as I just mentioned, and also an enhancement and adjusted earnings per share of approximately 10 pence. Now, as projects are completed, this expenditure will be amortized. And so over the short to medium term, the effect will begin to reduce. But I wanted to talk about the example at the foot of the page to illustrate this and help shareholders understand the effect on our results. So in the illustration, we've used a few assumptions. One, that we capitalize the same amount every year and we've used an easily divisible number. Two, that all projects that we start in a year complete by the end of the year. And three, that all projects are amortized over three following years in line with the group's policy. And you can see in the first year, significant effect on earnings per share. As you then go into the second year and you start amortizing, that effect reduces. And after three full years of amortization, there is nil net effect. Now we know that this is an example and it's not gonna be necessarily the same in the real world, but it's an important illustration to show shareholders and in particular to bring shareholders' attention to the, you know, the artificial enhancement to our performance that having done this has done to our, our results this year. I wanted to talk about the bellwether for our business order intake. And as I always say, important to talk you through the graph on the right-hand side of the slide. And on that graph, there are three lines, a red line, a black line, and a green line. And the far end of the graph is December 21. So the red line is our internal sales budget. We set this once a year and we do that as part of our annual budgeting process and it doesn't change for the whole year unless we acquire a business, in which case we add their cumulative budget. And then what are we measuring against? And actually, before I, I say that, one thing you, you would note is that, you know, I hope you appreciate we, can, we understandably had a conservative sales budget for 2021 following COVID. So what are we measuring against? Well, the black line is the last 12 months order intake and so the purpose of that line is hopefully it's at least touching the red line by the end of the year ideally above it and that way we'd have had sufficient orders with which to meet our sales budget and the green line is the last four months of orders annualized so we multiply that by three and that we look to track the red line ideally because then if it tracks it consistently we know we're having consistent order intake and that enables us to have optimal capacity although as you'd always see on the graph because it's a shorter term measure, the line is a lot more jagged and because order intake is never smooth. So what happened this year? Well, you can see that the black line went ahead of the red line relatively early in the year and it stayed comfortably above that and kept growing. And the green line was pretty much for the whole year ahead of the red line. And this illustrates why we've had 25% increase in our organic order intake and that we've ended up with a really strong order book at the end of the year. Now, I would say there are a couple of things that also affect the order book, in particular to say some logistical and supply chain challenges, which stopped us from being able to deliver as much as we might like to have delivered through the year. And secondly, also a really strong acceleration through the second half of the year. And consequently, given the lead times in our group, we wouldn't be able to deliver most of what we actually brought in in the last quarter. Now, at the end of the year, great order book. Where are we now? Well, for the first 11 weeks, we're slightly ahead of the same period last year. So overall, a positive picture going into 22 with slightly better order intake than we had at the same time and a really strong order book. And here I just wanted to stop to just talk a little bit about 2019 because I alluded to this at the beginning of my, my part of the presentation that we're maybe not quite as good as it might look on the surface. I think valuable for shareholders to be able to see this. So 2019 was previously our record year. First thing to say, as we've talked about already, organic order intake for 2021 was 8.5% ahead of 19. So that on a like-for-like -like measure is better. But financial performance hasn't quite caught up, despite the fact 
that we've got record performance this year. And I thought it valuable to show shareholders why I feel that we still have a little way to go. Now, I touched on a little bit about our ability to deliver in the last slide, but actually the real key are in the items that are in the table at the foot of the slide. So firstly, R&D capitalization for the first time this year. And secondly, since the end of 19, we've acquired three businesses, Moorfield Nanotechnology in December 19, THG Thermal Hazard Technology in May 2020, and Corvus Technology in October 2020. Those three businesses, their acquisition EBIT were combined 2.4 million. So you take away the effect of R&D capitalization, you take away the effect of those three acquisitions. Our comparable profit is 90% of what we achieved in 2019. So it's clear that whilst we've had a record year and we've done really well and a strong recovery, we've still got a little way to go before the financial performance is actually ahead of what we did in 19. Moving on to the next slide and the components of our profit growth. And this slide reconciles between the 2020 and 2021 contribution of our businesses. And this is before central costs. And those are the two big columns on the left and right hand side of the slide. Now reconciling between those two columns are three further blocks. The first one showing strong growth at the vast majority of our businesses. Although you can see in the second block, a couple of our businesses drop back in their performance. The third block shows the full year contribution of our prior acquisitions. All in all, a very positive picture for the group and shows the value of a diversified group, balance sheet and cash flows. And the group has an excellent track record of cash generation and a strong financial position. And we built on that in 21. We generated 19.6 million of cash from operations at a cash conversion of 104%. And David mentioned low capital use at the start of the presentation. We normally expect to have less than 10% of working capital compared to revenue, although at this year end slightly higher than that. And that's really been a consequence of the supply chain conservatism that our businesses have had to exhibit and also our inability to travel to international installations, complete those and collect the cash therefrom. Having said that, we have a blue chip base of customers, both universities and industry, and you saw that when David talked through the customer base earlier in the presentation. But the most important thing for me on that is that we experience minimal bad debt. Our strong cash flow provides the group with resilience in tough times and enables us to deliver our buy and build strategy and provide progressively increasing dividends for shareholders. And we've been able to increase the final dividend to 47 pence per share. And consequently, our full year dividend is up 20% to 66 pence per share. And we've managed to turn 5.7 million of net debt at the start of the year to 1.4 million of net cash at the end of the year. And hence we have and continue to have significant headroom on all our covenants. Lloyds Bank continue to provide us with unwavering support. And this year they helped us refinance our bank facilities, providing us with a further five-year runway. And I'll talk more about the refi a little bit later. Moving on to return on total invested capital. And this is another key measure for our group. In its purest form, it's a function of the multiples we pay for the businesses we acquire. So on the left-hand side of the slide, when we made our first acquisition, FTT, and paid close to five times, we start at around 20%. And growing ROTIC thereafter requires improved financial performance and or acquiring businesses at lower multiples. The big cliff edges you can see in the middle of the slide when we acquired GDS and Scientifica, but then record multiples of six times, you can see when the group was a lot smaller, the impact of higher multiples on ROTIC. And likewise, you can see when we acquired THT in May 20, the reducing effect. And smaller acquisitions have less impact on ROTIC now. At the end of this year, we'd improved ROTIC back up to just over 28% from 23% at the start of the year. And we continue to work hard to return ROTIC to recent highs of around 30%. So this next slide shows a good picture of the diversification of the group. You see on the left-hand side, summary of all of our businesses' revenue. And you can see that no single company dominates. Our businesses also manufacture different scientific instruments for different markets. So we're diversified by scientific application. And on the right-hand side of the graph, you can see that no individual country or region overly dominates our geography. 
a good diversified picture. So this slide summarizes some key financial statistics about the long-term success of our group and revenue and profits and earnings per share have all grown strongly over the history of our group. And this year we've delivered record revenue, record profit and record EPS. Our compound annual organic revenue growth has gone back up to 7.4%, which for a group that business model is acquiring sustainably profitable businesses is creditable. And we continue to focus on cash generation in order to be able to continue to reduce acquisition debt, fund future acquisitions, and reward shareholders with continued growing dividends, of which this year, the full year dividend is up 20% to 66 pence per share, and our compound annual growth of the dividend remains close to 25%. So on my last slide on the refinance, in May 2021, we refinanced our original banking facilities. A 35 million facility was replaced with a new five-year 60 million facility. This is broken down into a 19 million term loan, 35 million revolving credit facility or RCF, and a 6 million uncommitted accordion, which if used would add to the committed revolving credit facility. The covenants are consistent with our previous facilities and the interest that we're paying is closely aligned with the previous deal. Overall, it's providing us with significant increases in our acquisition firepower. And on that note, we're going to pass back to David to talk about our growth strategy. Thank you very much, Brad. So we go to the next slide. And really two elements of growth. One is M&A and the other one organic growth. And with the passage of time, you know, in the early days of judges, for those who've been uh, interested in us for a long time, you know, M&A was the predominant driver uh, of our growth. But with the passage of time, we own more and more company, more and more companies, and the organic growth has become really as important an element. We talk about acquisition next, and we have to be really disciplined in doing acquisitions. And so what are we looking at, and what is the object of that discipline? Well, we must find companies which are strong exporters in a global niche market. Our business generally is a very international business. People don't really care where they buy uh, the stuff that they need. And as a result of this, if you don't export a lot, because the UK is a relatively small part of the global scene, it means that there's a lot of competitors around there. And although you have a lot of export opportunities because you don't export much, but it means that you have other companies who are also ready to invade your own market. And we need solid EBIT margin. And I think the, these are the two first things we look at in any business. So we're really looking for companies generating sustainable profits and sustainable cash flows. We've been paying three to six times according to the size as companies get bigger and predominantly when they go across 1 million EBIT, there's a lot more people interested in buying them and the process is a lot more competitive and it's more difficult. You have a lot more failure in what you're trying to do. So you have to pay more. And we, the bank has allowed us to buy two and a half times EBITDA and we've been paying between 2 and 4%. And now interest rates are a bit up, but in the scheme of things, it doesn't affect us so much. What we have to understand about this is a long incubation period, and it's very erratic in terms of uh, managing to catch the target and complete the acquisition. We have an excellent reputation, well-deserved, I'm sorry to boast, uh, in, uh, among sellers, and we're really providing financial certainty to sellers because we never renegotiate the terms that we've agreed in the heads of agreement. Uh, so we try to be really honorable throughout the process. And I think at the beginning, when we started, it was probably cost us because people expected that the final deal would not be what we had promised. So we had to promise a bit more than we needed. But now it has given us enormous kudos in the community of people who have things to sell. And in particular, we've done many deals where people have actually signed heads with somebody else who uh, didn't behave quite so properly. And uh, when the deal failed, 
they always come back to us. So we really the buyer of choice uh, for NADs which has failed. The model is very simple. You know, we generate cash flow in what we bought, reduce the debt, and reinvest in further acquisitions. So very simple model. So this year was not a particularly active year, so we didn't buy any new company. We did, however, increase our stake in Bordeaux acquisition from 75.5% to 88%. And, you know, it looks like a non-event, but, you know, spending a million eight on uh, on an acquisition on the basis of uh, four and a half times uh, EBIT is like a, doing a small deal. Uh, in 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 2020, Bordeaux generated 2.8 million EBIT, so it was you know it's quite a sizable subsidiary for us. So uh, what do we do uh, uh, after acquisitions? Well, uh, I'm going to pass it on to uh, to Mark, who's the one who does it. Yeah. Excellent. <clears throat> Thank you, David, and uh, hello to everybody. We're obviously not going to tell you everything that we do with our acquisitions, otherwise it wouldn't be our secret source. But let me give you a few hints about what we get up to after we buy businesses. I think the first place to start is that we're not a turnaround operation. We buy good businesses, as David has talked about. And if they're good businesses, they've already proved that they can design great products, make them and sell them. But what we find is that most of the businesses that we purchase have limitations. In some cases, that's limitations to do with staff. Many of them are very small businesses with something between 20 and 60 people working for them, um, many of whom have worked for the business for a long time and have had little exposure to the outside world other than the business they've worked for. Many have worked there since they left university. Um, and therefore, what that breeds is a sort of lack of knowledge about what the real world outside their businesses uh, is about. And uh, what its capabilities are. So going back to that old phrase that uh, the media laughed out about the time from, from Donald Rumsfeld is that they don't know what they don't know. And um, part of the process that we go through is to show them <clears throat> what they don't know. And in many cases, uh, that enables them to make some changes and some improvements very quickly. We do quite a bit on the basics. So we quite often buy businesses who don't do monthly management accounts. They look very hard at a few things each month, but don't focus very much on the margins they make in a month. You know, if you're a small business and you're alone, a critical issue for you at most stages of your um, growth is cash. Now, when you're part of a group, clearly cash is important, but it's not the be all and end all. So the focus can shift a little bit to profitability to margins uh, and you can afford to obsess less about cash and maybe take a few different decisions. Um, that also means that we've got opportunities for capital expenditure which you don't have to run past a bank uh, and that we can uh, assess for you. So we insist that they put a few basics in place, monthly management accounts, strong financial controls and maybe surprising to hear for many of you that uh, some of these businesses aren't used to doing stock takes. We bought business once where their stock take was someone wandering around saying, yeah, that looks about like half a million. And um, that was the number that went in their accounts. Um, we are much more rigorous with that and make sure that uh, proper financial controls are in place, proper stock takes, um, proper assessments, etc. cetera. Um, so we make sure the basics are in place. But then a lot about what we do is about making sure that they are positioned for growth. In many cases, businesses have got to a particular size, but then think that growing a little bit further is going to be a real challenge for them. Quite often, that's around the whole concept of people. One of the things that I've spent a lot of time with is, A, developing the capabilities of the existing people in the organizations, encouraging them to bring outsiders in where they need additional skills, and raising the bar on recruitment to make sure that we get excellent people in rather than just good enough. And for many people, making the change between a 20 or 30 person company, perhaps turning over five or six million and a company twice that size, requires a big change in mindset of the type of capabilities of people that, uh, that you need to rec recruit. 
And that, as I think I've said before in these events, also requires a sort of mindset change in terms of the importance of management per se. Many of these businesses have been very focused on technology and we have lots of people in them with PhDs of, on particular aspects of the business. But that doesn't always mean that those same people are great at running a team or great at running a business. And therefore, the skill of leadership and management becomes increasingly important as those businesses grow. One of the other things we do is we don't set absolute standards for businesses. We're very aware that each different business has a different dynamic and that rather than having black and white guidelines, we spend a lot of time working with each of the businesses to make sure that we encourage them to do what they can do rather than some arbitrary number. So we encourage companies to look at their stock and their stock turns, at their debtor positions, at their return on sales, return on capital, and strive for better, but uh, not towards an absolute standard, something that's relative to the, the potential for that business. In terms of growth, uh, we quite often find that businesses in the past have run out of ideas for new products and that uh, their selection process has been poor. Um, the R&D director's favorite product is the one that gets developed uh, rather than the one that might um, sell the most. So we encourage the businesses to try and be a little bit more selective over the uh, products that they choose. Um, once you've invented a product, you need to make it. and Again, we found that a lot of the businesses have a sort of granddad shed approach towards manufacturing, uh, whereas when you're a bigger business, you really have to look at that as a proper independent discipline, which requires the very specific skills that manufacturing engineers have, which are very different to those for uh, R&D engineers. Most of our businesses actually moving on to having invented a product and then produced it, you need to sell it. Most of our businesses have a pretty good sales network, which has been developed over the time, even the smaller ones. But again, we still encourage them to go a little bit further and work across the group at other distributors that other of their peer companies have and see if we can expand a little bit geographically. And then the final point would be having made the product and sold it, we obviously need to count the money. And we are very keen to make sure that each of the businesses has an IT system which is suited to its size and gives them the information they need to make good forward-looking decisions on the business. So those are the sorts of areas that we particularly focus on. Um, I think we've had an, a degree of success in most of those areas over the last few years. Um, but as, as, as each new company comes in, um, we try and make sure that we challenge them in all of those areas. Uh, and in fact, in a few businesses, when a business comes on board, uh, we find something new that we've not seen before that we can then disseminate across the group. So it's not just teaching them, it's also learning from the acquisitions where relevant as well. Uh, I'm sure you may have some questions on that, but uh, let me leave it at that for now. Uh, thank you so much, Mark. So we're just going to remind you a bit what we said about the outlook and the investment case. Why would we have our shares? Well, I think our business has been robust through this very difficult period. We have a strong balance sheet, actually stronger than at the beginning of COVID. Our long-term fundamentals, our strategy, Everything is unchanged and everything was unaffected by what happened in the last couple of years. And we have intact or even enhanced ability to execute deals. Of course, the pressure is on me to find them. I realize this. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of questions that I won't answer. And we still, as ever, focus on shareholder value. We're still in uncertain times. COVID is not completely over. And of course, governments have a bill to pay. Quite rightly, they injected a lot of money in the economy by paying people who couldn't work. And that was a very good thing. But of course, the bill hasn't been paid and it will be eventually paid if uh, we don't want to leave it all to the future generations. And you could expect, as you had after the financial meltdown in 2008, a succession of periods of stimulus and of austerity in different countries. Hopefully, as last time, it won't be synchronized with all the countries at the same time. So, you know, we'll be able to navigate and do more business in 
places where there's more stimulus and less austerity. There's a lot of geopolitical uncertainty. Of course, we, you know, all horrified by the uh, aggression against uh, Ukraine. Uh, this could still degenerate, and of course, uh, yeah, the, there has been and will remain tension also uh, in the Far East. So. Uh, it's not, not necessarily going to be an easy ride on the political front in the next few years. And of course, you have inflation. Uh, inflation uh, because of all this money which has been injected. Inflation because of the supply chain issues and uh, the price of oil because of the war. And, and uh, of course, the possibility of higher interest rates uh, for a period of time. Uh, Although we, you know, all the prediction are all this will not last, but we will see. Of course, current trading for the current year, we're starting from a strong position with 23 weeks of order book. This, you know, the highest we've ever had. We've had quite reasonable order intake in the first 11 week of the year. Strong financial position, good backing from the bank, and we well equipped to continue our strategy which has we see no need to change so the investment case a robust model with a discipline we intend to remain so a lot of targets we need to buy any earnings enhancing companies there are some but this is why we don't do so many deals because we want to be sure we're doing the right thing the long-term growth drivers which are you know, colossal growth in higher education and a constant thriving for optimization of everything humanity does and therefore the requirement for measurement, all this is still there and will be there for still many generations. Uh, we have the benefit of great diversity in geography and applications. We completely focus on shareholder value it means a pursuit of profitability, cash generation, and reducing always debt, and growing dividend at least 10% per year, and generating return on the capital we've invested. In fact, we've done better than 10% uh, growth in dividend. In the past 15 years, we have a compound growth rate of a dividend of 23%. And of course, the uh, shares are free of inheritance tax after they've been held for two years. So I think this concludes the presentation, I think, and we're on to questions. And um, we've got a question from Robin Speakman at Shawcap. Yes, thank you. Uh, good morning, chaps, and congratulations on a, on a good set of results in a still difficult year. It's clear there's more to come. Um, and in that respect, I just thought I'd like uh, it'd be useful to know, um, in respect of the businesses that sort of didn't perform that well last year for... I'm sure varied reasons. Um, what are the signs for those businesses as we're sort of entered 2022? Are you seeing more general improvement across across the business? Other other laggards moving forward now. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Robin. Yeah, I think there's a, a variety of uh, reasons why some businesses were slower than others to to pick up the ball. Uh, and, uh, you know, one example is, for instance, is, is CapEx freezes. You know, we, we have one of our subsidies very dependent on orders from large corporates, and corporates have been slow at revoking their CapEx freezes. So although there was a bit of an acceleration of uh, orders in that company towards the year end, it was very anemic. Uh, but we hope that now it, it will be over. Also, with uh, you know, when there's been a capex freeze, people don't and, and there's no trade shows to go and see what you're going to buy next year. Well, you just don't put in any orders. So we hope also with the 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 rekindling of physical uh, scientific conference, things will improve for that particular business. We, we also uh, have to realize that not all the uh, 
although all these companies are quite international, but they don't always sell to the same parts of the world. And some parts of the world have been hit uh, by COVID at different time, and the un inability to travel there uh, has been a bit factor. So uh, these are all the reasons why you know some companies are uh, doing better, faster than others. But so those which haven't recovered so quickly last year, we hope well, they, they will catch up this year. Okay, thank you. And um, we'll go to Sanjay Vidyarthi from Liberum. Morning all. Um, maybe a slightly different, quite a difficult question to answer, but um, given the spread of your businesses. But in terms of the competitive environment, um, has the pandemic uh, caused any distress in any of your markets? Have you seen any consolidation or, or any of your competitors um, falling by the wayside to an extent? Just, just you know, if there are any particular examples that, that stand out, we'd be interested to, to, to hear. Uh, I, 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 I don't think, I mean, you know, we could be affected by consolidation among our customers, but, you know, I mean, what if customers as universities they don't tend to merge so much, so that's a good thing for us. Uh, and we haven't seen uh, much in terms of consolidation of competitors, which would uh, trouble us, of course, because we don't want to be left behind. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, the, you know, not much has happened really on the strategic front in the last two years because everybody's been trying to, uh, you know, survive and prosper in a difficult climate. So uh, unless one of my colleagues has something to add, I, I, I think really uh, the picture is very much what it was in 2019. Yeah, I, if I could just add, probably the, I, I would completely agree with David in terms of customers and competitors. Maybe the one area that we've seen a little bit of action has been uh, in small suppliers. I think the pandemic has caused one or two small, and when I say small, I mean companies employing just a handful of people uh, where the owner is close to retirement to just say, I've, I've had enough and go. So we have seen a few uh, tiny suppliers um, uh, close their doors, um, but that I, I think has been the only only impact over the two years. Um, and as David says, no, nothing in terms of consolidation of competitors or customers. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. And we've got a question from Nicholas Cotton, who says, "Great results, thank you. How's the acquisition pipeline looking into 2022, please?" Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Nicholas. Uh, you know, I, it just let's go back to two years ago. And of course, as you realize, we never comment really on the actual situation that we see at any point in time. Uh, and so we, we won't change that. But I just want to repeat what I said in the past. I mean, first of all, what changed with COVID is you know enormous uncertainty and uh for many i think the fear that the companies wouldn't survive and, and and this is not a time when you decide to appoint somebody to sell your business and so uh clearly uh you know 20 in the beginning of 21 hasn't been a a great time for filling the pipeline of acquisitions. We did a couple of deals in, in 2020, THT and Corvus, but there were both deals which had been started uh, before the beginning of COVID. Uh, uh, but we managed to complete them during the uh, du during the pandemic, although we couldn't travel, so it was all done remotely as we all, you know, our life has changed now. And we, all lead our life from our basements. So this is how we did these two deals. But really, there wasn't much coming into the pipeline as we expected. What I did say before uh, is that uh, what I was expecting is to see the following thing. Uh, anybody who's in well into their 60s and who created a business, and it's basically their family fortune is largely in that business, they, they have to consider retirement and selling the business. 
in that decade between 60 and 70. Because nobody really wants to leave a widow with a business to sell which has no management. So it's a very, it's a very difficult thing to accept uh, that you're getting on and you have to do something about it and anything can happen at any time and leave your family in a mess. And so everybody's thinking about it. Like everybody's got some gray hair or no hair has to be thinking about these things. Uh, and of course, if you've lived 2008, uh, when you were maybe uh, yeah, 55 and uh, you thought maybe I won't survive, it's a big scare, but eventually you, you did survive and you didn't go bust. And uh, 12 years later, maybe you're around 67, and you have another scale like this, and then you survive. And what do you think? You're going to go and wait for the third shock, and maybe you won't survive. And how does it leave your family? So I think a lot, and I've been saying that for the last two years, a lot of people will rethink their lives after the pandemic and think, you know, must I do something uh, now, you know, or should I wait for the next time when I can't do anything and maybe it's too late. So I'm expecting uh, to have this pipeline refilling uh, post-COVID and a lot of people thinking, okay, you know, now is the time to think about it. Maybe not do something immediately because everybody suffered and you want to show a nice set of results when you put your company for sale. But eventually, uh, a lot of these companies uh, will be triggered into selling in the next few years. That's what I believe. Matthias Richard says, congratulations on great results. Can you elaborate on the impact of inflation on judges, particularly have input costs developed? And how do you think about pricing power of our products? Let's take it. Take the second one first. So in terms of pricing power, we have pretty good pricing power in most of our businesses. Um, probably 10 or 15% are operating in slightly more competitive markets and have to be careful. But in, in most cases, um, we can pass on costs. Um, in terms of the cost we're seeing, um, it seems to have gone in two or three waves during the pandemic. Um, there was certainly... Um, shortages which led to cost pressures um, from components uh, early on which then seemed to ease and then seemed to come again and certainly a couple of months ago the signs were that those were easing but I think in the last few weeks whether it's to do with Ukraine or whether it was coming anyway um, we've begun to see a few more pressures again um, I mean we had a situation to give you an example we had a situation um, a few days ago where one of our suppliers to one of our customers uh, confirmed that uh, they were on for delivering something in six weeks and the following day they phoned up and said I'm sorry uh, it's going to be 56 weeks um, and you know the concept of having a lead time of more than a year on a product that you're used to getting in six weeks is uh, is pretty difficult um, and if if the shortage is like that then there's no reason why suppliers shouldn't increase so you know what we're seeing is that you know, 90, 95% of products are fine. And then suddenly out of the blue, you'll get a tiny product, which is critical, maybe not that expensive, that's doubled or tripled in price. Um, so there's, there's absolutely no pattern when I go around the businesses talking to them about what they're struggling with. And, and every week, it's a different issue. Um, so it's very difficult at the moment to put your finger on it. Um, our margins haven't suffered so far. And as I say, in most of the cases, we, we feel reasonably confident we can pass it on. Thank you, Mark. And um, we have a question from Barry Singleton, who asks, why have you decided to introduce capitalised development costs? Is this in relation to a particular activity and will not be repeated? Or will this be an ongoing practice and an ongoing line in your accounts in future? Um, Thanks for the question. Uh, please, I can pass that question on to Brad. Yeah, I, it's, you know, our expectation is a, um, an ongoing line in our accounts. Um, yeah, we've, we've historically um, not been required to capitalise 
Um, we wanted to bring it to shareholders' attention. We've needed to capitalise um, development expenditure. It's become material for the group, and I don't expect it to not be material going forwards. And so, yes, I think every year you're going to see this effect. I talked about the effect earlier in the presentation. I think you'll see um, similar, possibly increasing, but certainly similar amounts, um, assuming that this year was a normal runway for product improvement on new products, which in my mind, it didn't seem a year which was particularly um, different in terms of the businesses feeling like um, they suddenly had loads of extra new products they wanted to create. So I think you should expect a, um, a similar runway going forwards. And so for the next couple of years, the um, results will be slightly flattered and that flattery will be reducing over the next couple of years. And then I think once we've got to sort of year four, will be more like a, um, a very balanced impact on the PL. Thank you, Brad. And a question from Matthew Davis from WH Ireland. You've provided a clear intent with respect to the dividend and medium term growth, which is well covered by earnings. Is there an absolute minimum level of cover management are working towards? We don't have a set um, a set minimum level and we'll take into consideration um, individual events if that was to cause a, a potential short-term issue to this. So as it stands at the moment, you know, we're comfortably above um, any, any level we might consider needing to think about um, increases to the dividend. And um, certainly, you know, I, I, we're nowhere near on an ongoing basis feeling like there isn't adequate cover for the dividend over the you know, medium term at least. Thank you very much. And that's the end of questions. David, do you have any closing remarks? Uh, thank you very much. I wanted to thank everybody for coming and also Tamzid and her team for organising it. And of course, uh, Mark and Brad for helping me with the most difficult questions. Uh, and I hope to see you all in good health and with good results in September. Bye. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.